We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and think about Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we're talking about the new film streaming on HBO Max and in theaters uh, selected across the country, Judas and the Black Messiah, starring uh, Daniel Kaluuya as uh, the Black Panther, Illinois chapter chairman, Fred Hampton, uh, and uh, Lakeith Stanfield uh, as a Panther turned informant named Bill O'Neill. Daniel Kaluuya just won last night, breaking news a Golden Globe for uh, supporting actor for his performances, Fred Hampton. Uh, Well-deserved, in, in my opinion. He, excellent performance in this movie. Uh, and just to take a step back from it, we happened to notice that uh, there were a lot of films and uh, shows in uh, that were awarded in Golden Globes that we've covered here on Pop Torah. We like to call that the Pop Torah bump. The Pop Torah bump. Um, so you're welcome, Hollywood, and uh, we'll be uh, awaiting your call. Uh, but we have a very special guest with us today to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to welcome uh, Dr. Corey D.B. Walker. Uh, Dr. Walker is a distinguished scholar and public intellectual. He is the Wake Forest Professor of Humanities at Wake Forest University, and his scholarship in public speaking affects a broad audience and he serves as a commentator for a number of media outlets in the United States and abroad. He's held faculty and academic leadership positions at Brown University, University of Virginia, Virginia Union University, and Winston-Salem State University, and visiting faculty appointments at Frederick Schiller uh, Universitat uh, Jena, Union Presbyterian Seminary. I I think I got that German one incorrect, but (laughs) you can correct me, uh, Dr. Walker. Uh, Union Presbyterian Seminary and University of Richmond. He was also a non-resident fellow at the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute for African and African-American Research at Harvard University. Uh, Dr. Walker, Corey, it's great to have you with us. Uh, Thank you so much, Michael. I'm so glad to be here with you and Jesse. And uh, this conversation today uh, is going to be uh, very hot. So it's going to continue your track record. So Hollywood should listen to this and uh, make sure that they're tuned in because what happens here uh, goes global. That's right. Smash that subscribe button. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Jesse, before we get into it, you want to give us a little summary of Judas and the Black Messiah? Absolutely. Um, So this film is the uh, biographical uh, story of Fred Hampton, played by, as Mike said, Daniel Kaluuya. Um, You know him. He from Get Out, I think, is what made him a star in Hollywood. Um, He's also in The Black Panther. 
Um, he, uh, he plays Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, a recent film that we also talked about when we talked about the trial of the Chicago seven, uh, focused on a small part of this film, which was ultimately the murder of Fred Hampton, um, which ends up playing a part in this movie and in Fred Hampton's story. But it really talks about Bill O'Neill played by Lakeith Stanfield, also an amazing actor. Uh, you know him from Atlanta. Um, to me, uh, I saw him uh, in his first role in Short Term 12, which I highly recommend with Brie Larson um, in that film as well. Um, and uh, he plays Bill O'Neill, an FBI informant. He's a um, small time criminal. He's caught by an FBI agent trying to uh, carjack a car and the FBI agent Roy Mitchell makes a deal with him saying, in fact, I'll drop all charges and I'll actually pay you if you infiltrate the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and become an informant against the Black Panther Party and its leader, Fred Hampton. And it's his own reports that end up going all the way up to the ranks of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who has a goal of really taking out, or as he says in the film, neutralizing Fred Hampton. Uh, along the way, Hampton ends up going to prison, not because of him, but actually because of another member of the local Black Panther Party who is also an informant. Well, he is in prison. Uh, Bill O'Neill rises up in the ranks to be the lead security officer for that chapter. And um, at one point there ends up being a, a shootout between the Black Panther Party and the Chicago PD. Um, O'Neill leaves just in the nick of time before he is killed, although there are other members of the party. And we see really the um, uh, gut-wrenching police brutality that uh, took place against the black community and still continues to take place against the black community uh, by law enforcement uh, in many cities by uh, many officers across our nation. Um, after Fred Hampton's release from prison, he reunites with um, his love interest who is now pregnant with his child. Um, eventually uh, Fred Hampton, we see that um before he returns to prison with Jagger Hoover wanting to neutralize him, uh, the the film ends with um, th this this um, heartbreaking scene. O'Neill reluctantly drugs Hampton's drink to part soon after. Officers and FBI agents raid um, Fred Hampton's apartment and end up shooting him and killing him. Later, when O'Neill meets with FBI agent Roy Mitchell. Mitchell gives him money um, and a pair of keys to a gas station that O'Neill is now an owner for. And um, O'Neill attempts to quit, but accepts the money and the keys. And the movie ends with archive footage of both um, of Fred Hampton's uh, speeches, of his funeral, but also an interview that O'Neill gave in the late 80s, uh, which showed that he continued to be uh, an informant for the FBI for many, many, many years. Uh, and then concludes with the information that uh, his son, Fred Hampton Jr. and his mother serve as chairman and board member of the Black Panther Party Cubs of a, a, a new iteration of the Black Panther Party. Right, and just also to add a couple of things that <clears throat> we see in the, uh, uh, in the epilogue uh, after showing the archival footage of uh, O'Neill's uh, interviews, um, we're, we're given the information that uh, shortly after some of those interviews 
aired, he committed suicide, um, which uh, I think you know lends itself to at least the thread that the movie portrays that uh, O'Neill was somewhat um, reluctant as an informant, um, which may or may not actually be borne out in the in in the history. Uh, but just to add a couple of things. Uh, uh, FBI agent Roy Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons, a great bit of casting. Uh, um, Hampton's girlfriend, uh, Deborah Johnson, played uh, wonderfully by Dominique Fishback. And uh, J. Edgar Hoover, played with scenery-chewing gusto by the great Martin Sheen. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, Corey, uh, just uh, on, a, on a film level, what, what did you think of the movie? Well, on a film level, um, I know it's been getting a lot of attention uh, simply because it, it brings uh, to a broad public uh, the story of Fred Hampton, the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. But more importantly, it, uh, the movie is a story about Bill O'Neill. Uh, and it's really a character study of what happens when you have a nation that's intent on subverting uh, a deep democratic movement. And when that democratic movement begins to challenge uh, the boundaries of the nation state, when it begins to challenge uh, questions of sovereignty and questions of legitimacy that marginalize the lives and life chances uh, of African-Americans and so many individuals who are on the underside of democracy, you see the full force of the state come down. So it's really this, this deep study uh, through, the, through the lives of Bill O'Neill, Fred Hampton, uh, and also the Illinois Black Panther Party. So when you're entering into the film, uh, you're entering into a, 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 a filmic representation of what can happen uh, when you have an out of control uh, of national government. What can happen when you have corruption uh, at the local level? What can happen in the absence of democracy uh, for so many individuals in a democratic society? Uh, so you see the idea of Fred Hampton, you see the idea of, of the party come to the forefront uh, as a deep freedom fighter. And you see a reactionary national government go into action to, uh, uh, to curtail uh, this democratic movement. Um, the film is really an interesting character study, uh, if you will. You, you want, the film is designed to have this deep conflict uh, to allow us to see this internal conflict uh, of Bill O'Neill as the, as the locus and really the, the, the core of the narrative thread of the film. But we really don't get to, we, we, we enter the film and we see Bill O'Neill, you know, standing outside uh, of, of this bar where he's about to imitate a uh, FBI agent and then become uh, and then go in and rob uh, these gang members inside the bar to, to take a car. But we really don't get to, we really don't get into the character of Bill O'Neill. Um, and a lot of the characters, even the character of Fred Hampton, were mainly introduced Fred Hampton through speeches uh, and not an intense character study. Uh, even the interactions between uh, Fred and Deborah are not uh, ones where you see this love growing and blossoming. Instead, we just find them uh, in love. I love that scene where they're drinking coffee, uh, where Fred Hampton invites her to, to, to a cup of coffee. And then uh, she states, uh, there's the line, I didn't imagine, I didn't know that you would be shy. 
that almost comes out of nowhere because we really don't get that deep character development. But it's a film that moves very fast. It has a, a, a big story to tell. Um, so in a sense, you're not going to get that deep character development. Um, there are some lines in the story, some, uh, some narrative threads that are left uh, un, uh, un, unexplored. Like when we, we we're in the car where there's the moment where uh, Bill O'Neill is almost uh, found out. Uh, but yet we really never start figure out who Judy is as a character. And the scenes are moving so quick that the, there's an assumption that the audience already knows the story. And that's, that may not be a good assumption uh, because this story in, in terms of a broad public, a broad American public is not known. So there's this, uh, 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 there, there's this moment where, and throughout the film, there are moments throughout the film where you're like, wow, we could really use more character development, or we could really use more narrative development in the film to tie together some of the threads, um, or to make the narrative, uh, to make the narrative arc of the film easier to follow for the viewer. Um, there's some good cinematic shots. Uh, that that you like that that I like. I mean, um, I like the scene, the opening scene where uh, the character Bill O'Neill is standing on the wall with his hat down. There's some elegant symmetry there uh, between the uh, thin Bill O'Neill and the brick wall uh, behind him. Um, so there's some elegant scene shots there. Some some interesting cinematography. Uh, but at the same time, you really want you, you know, you want that narrative push and you want that full character development. Um, but what can you say? I mean, it, it, it tries to do a lot within, you know, I think it's a little over two hours. Um, and it's a big story to try to tell. And what you have to do as a filmmaker is you're going to make some choices. And, you know, they make some good choices. Some of the choices you question. Uh, I love a fuller, richer development of uh, Fred and, 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 and his wife. Um, I love more of a development between Bill and Fred. What type of relationship was there? So then we can get really get that angst uh, if, we, if, we, if we see that. Um, but those are just some of my initial thoughts. I'd have to go back and continue to watch and rewatch the film. Um, and that's, that's a film that folks are going to watch. I mean, the Black Panthers, uh, are hot. I'm just thinking of Stanley Nelson, uh, the uh, PBS documentary on the Black Panthers from 2016. Uh, that was just five short years ago. So we're seeing this uh, resurgence of interest in the Black Panthers visually. Uh, and there's also an interest in it uh, in terms of new scholarship beginning to reassess the Panthers. Um, but this is, this is long, uh, it's a long arc. I mean, First Fred Hampton documentary comes out in '71, so it's not this isn't this isn't new to some audiences. It may, it's new to a broad, you know. Of course, it's Warner Brothers, right? So here's a film pushed by Warner Brothers. Uh, it comes out in a moment, feeds off of America's uh, racial reckoning, you know, the American Spring of 2020. So of course, it's feeding off that, uh, and also a global pandemic uh, that's pushing viewership. Uh, for a number of different venues uh, across across multiple platforms, so you see uh, this film enjoying the HBO Max platform. So, um, Jesse, what was your take? 
I would second what Corey was saying about the lack of character development. Um, I, I think uh, Daniel Kaluuya's um, Golden Globe win was well-deserved. Um, I, I think, uh, like I said, Lakeith uh, Stanfield is one of my uh, favorite actors. He's, to me, is the best part of the show Atlanta. Um, I, I think it's really difficult to tell an intense story, uh, an emotional story, without... Um, background knowledge or an attachment to the characters. And there could be an assumption that because it is a biographical drama, that there is knowledge about who the characters are. Um, but I think the screenplay uh, would have been better if there was more character development, right? The story begins with Fred Hampton already as uh, leader of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. And this is my, my own white privilege. And this is where, uh, Corey, I, I'm hoping you will uh, help educate Micah and me and many of our listeners uh, that uh, not having the historical knowledge of the rise of the Black Panther Party, um, I, I think having that knowledge um, may not necessitate the character developments and the story development in, in the same way. Uh, but without that, I think that's where I think the character development was, was lacking for me, even if the performances were tremendous. Oh yeah, I was, I was thinking that, you know, if you have a fuller character development, because I mean, it, it's, it's not, a, it, it's not a, um, a biography of Fred Hampton, right? It, this, is, this is sort of inspired by a true story. And so it becomes now the onus of the filmmaker uh, to then begin to drive that narrative of what this film is about. So if it's a character study about um, the, the idea of internal struggle uh, between of a character, Bill O'Neill, and his, his struggle between, you know, doing the right thing, he be, will he become a panther, or continuing uh, to serve as uh, a confidential informant uh, for the FBI, which is part of a broader counterintelligence program. That it, it, it just isn't. It, it just isn't these singular characters. The characters serve as an entree point uh, to these larger issues and larger uh, stories. Then you have to look at how do I how do I develop these characters? How do I use cinematography to also uh, enhance these character studies. How I use um, uh, the dialogue of the movie um, to begin to enable us to understand that development. All too often, uh, what we do, particularly with this film, is like, you know, folks, are, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at some of the commentary and heard the commentary and try to reduce it to, well, this is this is what happened in 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 history and this is what's the film. No, it's a film. It, it it says it's a film. It says, look, this is a film inspired by true events. Okay, I'm not gonna come in and be like, look, this ain't got no history to it. You know, it's all wrong for it. Hanson started off with the NACT, so you got to understand him as a youth organizer before he becomes a panther. You got to understand the whole culture of, of youth organizing. It took out all the Chicago politics, right? I mean, you think of 1968 in Chicago, Democratic National Convention, another film that was up for uh, Academy Awards, Aaron Sorokin's uh, uh, Chicago 7. That happened. Fred Hampton spoke at a rally 
for uh, uh, for the Chicago Seven uh, in 1968. But that sort of is eviscerated. The Daily Machine is no is nowhere existent in the film. So, but I, I I'm not gonna look for that. I'm gonna look for what does the film do? How does it develop its characters? If if you're gonna fo- if the focus of the film is the if the linchpin of the film is Bill O'Neill and Bill O'Neill being a, a a confidential informant and going through that angst, then you're gonna have to drive that harder. I mean that scene where they have the shootout at the Black Panther uh, headquarters, there is no tension in that scene, right? None. Although he wants to get to the roof. Because if he can get to the roof, he can get off the building, you know, he, he wants to figure out a way out. But there's no tension driven to that point of the way out. And we just arrive at that scene and you're like, well, hold up. How do we get here? There's a point where you can drive tension. But uh, that, that's us being our armchair uh, uh, film critics. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I I agree with both of you. I mean, I think that uh, you know the the um, you know the film as a whole, you know, didn't end up being you know greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, you know, I think that the the performances were strong, especially the lead performances were were really strong. Uh, uh, but I, I think you're right. I think that it um, you know ultimately didn't go very deep into uh, into you know who these characters were and, and what their motivations were. It didn't. Uh, give a lot of like uh, color and richness to the history. It just was, you know, ended up being kind of a portrayal of it. Um, maybe accurately, maybe inaccurately in, in some ways. Um, you know, but I, in, in a way, like hearing this conversation, it feels to me that the, you know, the real subject of the story here was, is not Fred Hampton or Bill O'Neill, but it's how, like you said, Corey, how, you know, white supremacy functions in, in America and how, you know, movements for democracy uh, um, can be, you know, sort of killed in their infancy by the by this sort of like strong, you know, uh, reaching expansive arm of white supremacy that has sort of like tentacles in all sorts of insidious places. And in particular, the the Chicago Police Department. I mean, we we did an episode on the uh, Chicago Seven, right? So we, we we've talked about that a little bit before. Clearly, there was an issue with the Chicago Police Department in the late '60s. But what's what's you know what's powerful about this movie coming out right now is the recognition that it's not just the Chicago Police Department in the late 1960s, yeah. right? That this yeah. is the way white supremacy functions in America. This is exactly Michael. This is this is goal, this is the, the key function of how we have to understand it. It's not some disembodied system. It's not some individual isolated incident. It is systemic, it is institutional, and it is historical. It moves across space and time. And it infects our, the legitimate authorizing institutions of the nation. So it's not something that's you know, an aberration. You know, it's not something that that is out there that is you know abhorrent to the ways and the ordinary ways of thinking. It is the everyday. I mean, this is what you know. This is the idea that that the movie does bring out, and of course, this is what the Panthers do uh, so eloquently. You know, here you have a um, you know Panthers are well known for their community service, their community programs their breakfast programs, their ambulance programs, uh, their health programs. I think, you know, Alondra Nelson, uh, she just joined the, uh, she, she was president of Social Science Research Council uh, at the Institute for Advanced Studies and just joined the Biden administration. Her book on uh, body and soul on the Black Panthers health program, uh, that re- re- reminds us 
of how in the absence of any um, effective means of the state providing the basic prerequisites for citizenship, food, shelter, health, clothing, opportunity. In light of that, the Panthers have to do what? They have to build a they have to build their own state, if you will. This becomes the idea, you know, the idea that they start as the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Two years later, they just become the Black Panther Party. They drop for self-defense. They also see themselves under siege. I mean, these are Black communities under siege, Black urban communities, of course, out in California, but of course, in, in urban areas uh, like Chicago. Of course, in areas uh, where I'm at in Winston-Salem, we have one of the only chapters of the Black Panther Party in the South in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So you get Nelson Malloy and Larry Little starting the Black Panther Party in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So what the film provides us with is an opportunity to begin to raise broader questions about how does a state respond to a deeply democratic movement? And it's part of a larger movement. The entire Black freedom struggle is the broadest, deepest democratic struggle that occurs in, uh, since uh, the end of Reconstruction, since the end of Reconstruction uh, in the United States. A hundred years later, here you have this broad democratic movement. And of course, what Fred Hampton does in Chicago is build the Rainbow Coalition that will be instrumental and having um, uh, uh, Mayor Harold Washington come to the forefront as mayor in 1983, elected as mayor, and will become the base of what Jesse Jackson does, uh, uh, runs on as president in 84 and in 88. So you see a, a new type of politics emerging. Uh, we, in this film, the absence of politics, you know, this is where you could actually have a fuller character development. I mean, Fred Hampton, for someone who is assassinated at the age of 21, has a tremendous potential where he sees the uh, uh, ability to connect and move across issues. And you think of what happens, you know, where he's part of. Think of this. In 68, when King is assassinated, he's leading this broad multiracial effort called the Poor People's Campaign. So we're seeing more mobilization more uh, modes of solidarity that are really attacking the core issues of democratic uh, society, and that is the deep iniquity in capitalist, uh, in capitalist political econ economy, as well as the ways in which you have to deepen democracy to make democracy responsive to the grassroots. It's, I mean, it's, it's so resonant for, you know, for, for this moment in which, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, first of all, we had, like you mentioned, the, you know, the American uh, summer uh, this past summer, um, you know, with, with uprisings for racial justice, ultimately uprisings for, for more democracy. We had uh, a presidential election uh, that um, had the most participation in American history and then a, a fierce and violent backlash against it that is ongoing, right? Not only the violent backlash, but also the legal backlash of yeah. uh, you know trying to now now we're going to go back into the states and make as many restrictions as possible to make it harder for people to participate and That's vote right. because yeah. we you know we we want to enshrine minority rule as best we can as as much as we can. 
that's you, we're seeing this right before our eyes. I mean, here is here is a movie that's uh, emblematic of of a push for broad and deep democracy. We step out of the movie and then we enter uh, into a context, a social, political, and economic context where democracy is trying to be curtailed, trying to be hijacked, uh, continually trying to be uh, mar continually trying to be arrested before it even is is, is being able to uh, flower. You think of what happens just from 2010 to 2021. I mean, in order to get the, uh, to, to, in order to get this full effervescence of democracy in the 2020 election, it took a two decades long movement, grassroots, particularly in Georgia, but throughout the South and throughout the nation to get folks out to the polls. And concomitantly, you not only had a, a legislative assault against democracy, you also had a legal assault against democracy, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, right? The, the treating of corporations as citizens with Citizens United uh, in 2010, of course, with Holder v. Shelby in 2013. So you're seeing the structural limitations of democracy that then give rise to popular movements like Black Lives Matter. And of course, what these movements on the ground do is constantly push and expand the terrain of democracy to begin to not only look at the formal parameters of democracy, not only just voting, but much like what the Black Panthers were doing, looking at how democracy can be deepened in the everyday. How do we get rid of uh, police, police violence uh, against citizens? When we look at what happened with uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, they're an extension. And even in the movie, we have an illusion because Fred Hampton's mother uh, babysat Emmett Till. And this is a continuation of a continuation of legitimate violence, both police and extrajudicial uh, violence against black, brown and indigenous communities. So you have these stories that come up, these films can raise deeper questions, but all too often the conversations around them sort of leave us, you know, asking, we could talk about the aesthetics or the filmic strategies of, of the film, but also they raise a whole set of deep questions about the dearth of democracy in our society and the challenges, you know, Mike, Mike you talked about uh, the challenges going on in uh, over uh, 15 states uh, that are challenging the electoral law. There's an important case that's going to be heard uh, in front of the Supreme Court tomorrow uh, that goes to the issue of the Voting Rights Act. And it's being brought by uh, the Republican Party of Arizona uh, to talk about the question of, of ballot access. And uh, it, it, it's a, the case involves um, how, how close of a person do you have to be in order to act to for um, a mail-in ballot or an absentee ballot? Should it be your family members? And folks have used, they've used these language uh, games like ballot harvesting. Right. Like, really? This is, this is what we're doing? Democracy is about people voting. I mean, this is what Fred is talking about, right? I mean, in that famous speech, you can, you can, you can kill the freedom fighter, but you can't kill freedom. They still, folks still don't understand the depth and complexity of that, that the, the rush for freedom, the, the struggle for freedom continues. And I think this is what this movie raises. It enables us uh, to engage in a public conversation about what kind and what will be the character 
uh, of our democracy. Uh, and what does what do the images that portray the absence of democracy inform us of possibilities for reestablishing or refounding or reconstructing uh, American democracy? And you know, I wonder also the importance of whose voices we hear uh, when we learn uh, of these stories, because I, I have to admit, right, growing up as a white, right, man with, with privilege as a kid, uh, what Roy Mitchell said to Bill O'Neill when he encouraged him to be an informant of, you know, no, we need you to, to infiltrate the Black Panther Party because they're no different than the Klan, um, uh, right? There are, there are many uh, white children who, who heard very similar stories. And so the idea of uh, the Black liberation theology uh, and how um, it's not about violence and discrimination, which is very much what the Klan is about, but it's about rising up against um, those who try to push you down. Well, it, 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 it really it challenges the legitimacy of the state, right? I mean, this is what this is really the question uh, that, that's being raised in that moment. It's trying to uh, really secure and authorize the legitimacy of the state by saying, you know, I was down in Philadelphia, Mississippi, you know, Cheney, Schwerner, Goodman, I worked that case. So there's that's where uh, the, uh, uh, the, the FBI agent is, is lending out a branch of friendship saying, I'm really on your side. I'm trying to protect uh, all citizens. And what I saw in Philadelphia, Mississippi, I see in Chicago, Illinois. What we saw in Mississippi with the Klan is the same thing as what we're seeing with the Panthers. But what the Klan is doing is killing freedom fighters. What the Panthers are doing is uh, involved in self-defense of because the state is unleashing legitimate and authorized violence against the Panthers. Why? Because they see problems with the state. That becomes the key issue. But we, you know, there's an opportunity for us to begin to look at, say, well, how is it that I begin to see one as legitimate and one as illegitimate? How is it that, I mean, and, and, and the interesting thing about the Panthers is it brings up the, the, a key issue. It is not offensive violence that they're arguing for. This is self-defense. I mean, the first iteration that Huey Newton and Bobby Seale give the Panthers is the Black Panther Party for self-defense. When they walk up in the capital of California and Sacramento, they know they can hold long guns, but they're, they're, the lo those long guns are not loaded because once you load them, you break the law. So they understand the law, but there's a long tradition. Uh, Charlie Cobb, uh, long distance runner in the freedom uh, struggle and a uh, 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 member of, of student nonviolent coordinating committee wrote a wonderful book, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. Talks about a long tradition of black self-defense. When you go to Mississippi, of course you see uh, the deacons for self-defense. I mean, uh, Akinella Umoja at, at, at Georgia State University, uh, We Will Shoot Back is another uh, uh, textbook that reminds us that when we think of the black freedom struggle, it was a very violent event. And it was very violent in terms of the legitimate violence unleashed by the state. 
often we think that the black freedom struggle is a series of marches and then we get uh, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and then everything is good. Martin Luther King gives a speech and everything is wonderful. We fail to realize King is assassinated uh, after less than a month after the March on Washington, we have the Birmingham church bombing. I mean, these are bombings. Uh, Birmingham is Birmingham. I mean, so when we think of the violence that is unleashed and when we think of the ways in which police violence is always on the table throughout the black freedom struggle, uh, the Black Panther Party becomes the latest iteration of fighting against police violence. Remember, you go back through and read all of those uh, Black Freedom Struggle speeches from Malcolm X to Martin King. They're all talking about police violence. I mean, this becomes the issue, one of the key issues uh, that begins to curtail democratic chances and democratic possibilities. This goes right back to the question of, you know, the question of the tyranny of majority that's raised by Alexis de Tocqueville in democracy in America. What does he call the police? The majority under arms. So this is something that's core to American democracy. When we try to treat it as epiphenomenal or, you know, some side issue, what this movie brings back to the forefront and what our conversations on the Panthers bring to the forefront, what the American spring of 2020 brings back to the forefront is the very centrality of what we have to wrestle with. And that is the, the, the state having legitimate means to resort to violence against the citizenry. And what that means when you have a historic and continuing divide of disproportionate state use of violence against minority communities. I mean, this reminds us that, you know, we not only need to go to Tocqueville, but we also need to go to Weber because Weber tells us what? The state has all legitimate rights to violence and what you see with the Black Panthers and what you see with so, so many Black freedom struggle uh, traditions and movements is that that should not be so. And if the state is constituted by the people, then the people have some say in how the state operates. But if we still try to circumscribe we the people to a narrow view, right? Jesse, this is what that narrow vision of history that, that folks are being fed, that narrow vision of how we understand democracy, that narrow vision of how we understand these freedom movements that expand the terrain of democracy. When we have, when we continue with that sort of education, these movements will inevitably continue until, as King said, the bright day of justice emerges. I really uh, appreciate that. You know, I mean, you just, um, you know, reminds us that, you know, so often the the police and you know, why the police were, you know, uh, were and are such a focus of, uh, you know, uh, democratic movements for for change, for, for racial justice is that, you know, the the, the system is set up to uh, protect the status quo. The status quo is white supremacy, right? And so, you know, so the so the police are going to, it's right, it's not just a case of, of bad apples, although there may be some of those too, right? But, but the infrastructure of what the police are trying to do, um, even if they don't fully realize it on an individual basis, right? The system is set up to, uh, to you know, to protect the privilege at the uh, expense of the vulnerable. 
you see that, I mean, what, what, what we're hearing right now, and in the movie, there was, a, there was an absence of, um, in 67, 68, the few African-American police officers that had been led onto the force uh, of Chicago um, organized. Uh, and they organized to stop police violence inside the Chicago Police Department. I mean, imagine, imagine, you know, here you have these police who are organized against police violence in Chicago, against the police department. What, what we're seeing is that this idea of going down to the roots of being a radical, if you will, is that if you're thinking what, what, Fred Hampton is, is saying, and in, in the movie, they're constantly talking, they're using the language of comrade. They're trying to begin, they're developing a new sense of citizenship and a new mode of solidarity, not just seeing individuals as a voter, but really seeing an individual uh, as a neighbor, as a new community emerging, as a new possibility of politics emerging. So in that moment, then you have to begin to reorganize everything. This is the capacious vision of the black freedom struggle. It's not just police reform. It is how should we police, how should our communities feel safe? How do we then begin to engage in a process of making all citizens feel safe, having all citizens uh, have the opportunity to enjoy the full privileges and rights of citizenship, and then opening up new possibilities uh, for organizing a broader society? That's really what's going on. The breakfast program, uh, these survival, the, the survival programs, as the Panthers called them, were just those programs that would push us toward beginning to think quite differently about the possibilities of how we organize collective life. And of course, when you get Fred Hampton moving across Chicago, building these multiracial, multi-ethnic alliances, and then beginning to attack systems of struggle, uh, systems that, that perpetuate oppression and that continue to animate negative uh, movements for struggle instead of those positive movements, what, what Hampton and the Black Panthers are, are showing us is this is the possibility of a new society emerging. This is the possibility of a deep democracy. What the movie then uh, dramatizes, and, and, and it seems of having folks come together, particularly in that, that, final, that scene where Hampton, uh, you, you have both um, uh, the, 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 the white, um, the white Patriot Party, as well as um, the, the Latin Kings, um, and then the West Side Gang come together, looking at the possibilities of what would a broad, reflective, deep democracy look like. And it means also that democracy doesn't have any prerequisite. You don't have to be a proper democratic citizen. Democracy takes people where they are. Now, that's revolutionary. Because then all of a sudden, everyone has the ability to, to exercise democracy. And that also undermines those questions of how we police legitimacy in our society. And of course, that's what's happening right now. The American Spring of 2020 has placed those questions back on the agenda broadly and centrally. And they've used the language going back to that failed reconstruction of American democracy, the language that W.E.B. Du Bois uses in Black Reconstruction 
of abolition democracy. Abolition democracy is a vision of democracy that emerges when you have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments fundamentally re fundamentally redefine the nation state, the meaning of citizenship, uh, as well as the depth and possibility of political community. All of a sudden, that's back in, but folks, we don't want to think about that, right? We just want to say, ooh, abolition is bad. No, abolition democracy is actually the fulfillment of a long idea of democrat, of deep democracy and an idea of freedom. Corey, I'm wondering if we could shift gears slightly yeah. um, and, and, and think of the conversation we're currently having um, through a religious viewpoints. Um, so asking you really as, as a pastor and as a theologian, how do you uh, look at these ideas um, through the lens of religion, maybe through a textual perspective? Oh, I, I think of it... Um, you know, through through the very idea that when we want, when the prophets uh, challenge us, the prophets always challenge the community of the faithful. You know, and that becomes the deep and abiding tradition. I mean, when you think of uh, the tradition of, of African American, of Protestant Christianity in African America, that that tradition draws on that deep prophetic tradition. Uh, of the, not only being truth tellers to the community, but also standing up and challenging the community to stand for justice. This is where the language of freedom and justice doesn't become a language of the hereafter. It becomes a language that moves into the, the here and now. It's not something that that's after, we, we're going to enjoy this in the afterlife. It is a challenge to create that community. Looking at the Black freedom struggle. Thinking about uh, Fred Hampton, looking at the struggles of the Black Panther Party, of uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, of SCLC, you bring that language of the of beloved community to the forefront. That is the language that we baptize in the, in the ideas of deep democracy, of democratic citizenship. Democratic citizenship is nothing but a is nothing more than valuing the worth, value, and dignity of all of humanity. That's of all God's creatures. That's of all creation. So we don't have to bifurcate, you know, have this either or sacred secular bifurcation. That's what I learned from, from you know, the black, the black freedom tradition and the black Christian tradition. That, that bifurcation is what's killing us, right? It is the recognition of the dignity, diversity, and density of God's creation. And when you do that, that's where you have this deep, radically, uh, religiously plural context or religiously none. You welcome all of those. It also reminds us that deep democracy means that we have to value all life. That's not only human life, it's planetary in its vision. So now it has an ethic of how we should deal with our environment. It is also an ethic of how we should cultivate, uh, how we should cultivate our relationships. And it reminds us to have this idea, to enact this idea that, that, that we're playing around with uh, in, in the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation of faithful solidarity. Meaning, how do we begin to enact and embody modes of solidarity and recognizing the deep density and diversity of human life and of, of planetary life? 
that means that we can't just want everyone to be like us, right? That 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 would that would that, that would that would miss the whole point. It is how do we welcome the deep otherness of human possibility in our community, in our midst, and then recognize that in and through our difference, we not only see the uh, the the kingdom of God. We and notice what I said: the kingdom of God. We can get out of these notions of kings and you know this hierarchy and build on these deeper solidarities. How do we then build human community? And in a moment of pandemic, in a moment of of planetary uh, of, of planetary collapse, and in a moment of, of really deep uh, social and political crisis, uh, such modes of solidarity are deeply necessary. Just think of how the uh, our COVID vaccines are being distributed inequitably around the world. Uh, the, vac- the, the virus doesn't respect boundaries, doesn't respect the ways in which we've categorized and cut up humanity, but yet we're, at, we're operating out of those same categories. Um, and that, that's really a call. I mean, Fred, the, the idea that comes out of Fred Hampton and the Illinois uh, chapter of the uh, Black Panther Party Rainbow Coalition. That is a planetary politics. Uh, And you know what? I don't need to baptize that in any text because we see that in the beauty of God's creation. I'm I'm into that. You know, I think about as as we're approaching in uh, a few weeks, the Jewish holiday of Passover, uh, where we talk about the Israelites uh, finally being liberated uh, and leaving uh, Egypt. The Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, uh, right? Many rabbinic commentators say it comes from Mitzarim, right? That they're not leaving Egypt, but they're leaving from uh, these narrow places and narrow mindedness. Uh, And uh, how is it that so many people left Egypt when there weren't necessarily Right. There were more people who left Egypt than there were who were enslaved in Egypt. And it talks about the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude of individuals who um, marched with them. Uh, and and I, I think of that imagery a lot that um, uh, liberation is uh, about allyship as well. Uh, it's, it's that that quote from the um, uh the, the um, abolitionist activist from Queensland, right, that said that if you are here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you're here because you understand that uh, our liberations are bound up with one another, then let's get to work. This is what you see in when we think of Rainbow Coalition, uh, we think of it within the geography of Chicago. But what we see in the Black Freedom Movement and with the, with the Panthers, we see that that's a global liberation, right? We see so many groups following and adhering to uh, what the Panthers are doing, what the, you know, the over 40 chapters just in the U.S. Those 40 chapters have different responses to their local community. And of course, when we see this global, you know, the Dalit Panther Party in India, the Black Panther Party in Israel that, that, commemor- that, that developed in 1970s as well, because what we're seeing is the ways in which individuals are responding to a message that liberation is global and liberation responds to the local. And when we see these liberation movements, these liberation movements respond not just in one dimension, they respond in many dimensions. They respond across uh, lines of difference. They respond across uh, conditions of oppression uh, they respond in ways in which we may not think 
in, in our own little circle. But when they reverberate globally, that's the beauty of it. And this is the beauty of how narratives of liberation can inform other struggles. I mean, of course, uh, within the Protestant tradition of, of Black Protestantism and Black uh, Christianity, the Exodus narrative rings true, right? You have so much of that Exodus narrative because what our modern day Egypt becomes the US, right? And of course, that moment of slavery, uh, how do we move out of that to a moment of freedom and liberation? But it is ongoing. It cannot purely stop and think that we've uh, found this particular uh, point of, of freedom and also many others are unfree. That's what Fred Hampton was telling us. I mean, this is the movie, the, the, the movie where Bill O'Neill has the struggle. It is an incomplete struggle for freedom. And you see that tension. Bill see, sees that tension, right? The, the, the Bill O'Neill understands that tension. In his interview that, that, Mike, you talked about at the end of the film, that was for Black Side, right? And that's when Eyes on the Prize was being done. Miss Henry Hampton and the crew doing uh, Eyes on the Prize that's then shown across the U.S. on, on PBS. When you're, when you're doing that interview, you see how that struggle is there. And, of course, we see the scene that right after Eyes on the Prize airs, uh, that, that he, the following day, uh, Bill O'Neill takes his life. There's that struggle um, because this is part of a long freedom struggle. And he saw himself as part of that. But part of it means that we cannot stop, that the story of Fred Hampton continues to animate that story of liberation, you know, from the exodus coming forward continues to animate the imagination and the story of freedom has yet, the full story of freedom has yet to be told. Uh, and, and we're part of it. So I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate, you know, you guys having attention to uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. This is going to be, you know, this is like a great conversation that will not stop. Right. No, I mean, I hope I hope that this uh, conversation you know, sparks a dialogue about this film and the issues that you're that you're raising um, within the Jewish community and uh, and beyond, um, because I think, you know, precisely I think we're in a, we're in a moment where where people are, are asking exactly that question. You know, what what makes a you know, uh, what makes a, a freedom fighter and a revolutionary versus, you know, a, a, a terrorist or a violent, you know, aggressor, right? What's the difference, people might ask, between, you know, the Panthers and the insurrectionists at the Capitol on January 6th? And I think you just answered the question, which is that um, that the, the freedom fighter has a, has a recognition of and a vision for um, uh, the the humanity of uh, of everybody, right? Everybody is included in the vision of liberation. Everybody is included in the vision of freedom. It's not to the exclusion of other people. It involves other people, right? It's sort of like what Dr. King said, which is like you know we're all going to be extremists for something, right? So I'm going to be an extremist for love, right? And that's yeah. what I'm calling you to to be as an extremist for love. And think of this. I mean, it, it, Nina Simone says, "What what happens when the king of love is dead?" You know. What happens when an extremist for love um, is assassinated? And of course, what, what the, this movie, what, uh, what, what um, Judas and the Black Messiah brings up is, what happens when someone, a young man, 21 years old, so much charisma, so much of a, of a vision of a new community, a community unbound, I mean, a community that really recognizes, affirms, and welcomes 
the worth, value, and dignity of all humans. The Black Panther Party in Illinois is deeply democratic, right? I mean, it, it is a deep egalitarian formation between men and women. Black Panthers are also the first ones to welcome uh, the LGBTQ movement. On the pages of the Black Panther Party speaks, what does Huey Newton say? We have to welcome uh, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Now, they're not perfect in their politics. Of course not. I mean, you got Eldridge Cleaver and his misogynist ways. And of course, he becomes this uh, deeply reactionary uh, figure when he comes back to the U.S. But what they offer is a vision of a new political community, a new social community, a new, new modes of solidarity, and of course, building bonds across communities. And this is global. You see the same happening now with Black Lives Matter, a global movement to affirm the interrelatedness, the interconnectedness of our community. And these are uh, global, you know, folks are, are, are achieving or folks are receiving um, influence and, and receiving the energy of the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. across the world. I mean, in Israel, we got Black Lives Matter movement. Why? You got police violence against uh, 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 Arab Jews as well as Ethiopian Jews. So folks are like, hold up, we got this movement. And of course, they're pulling off that long movement of what we see, you know, the Black Panther Party in Israel, Dalit Panthers. When we see uh, folks uh, in, in Northern Ireland singing, uh, we shall overcome. They're singing it in Lech Walensa's Poland, uh, Solidarity. These are global movements for freedom. And I think what, what the movie brings up is, you know, how wide are we going to draw the circle of we? Meaning, how are we going to put ourselves at risk to open up to the possibilities of a truly and authentic deep democracy? Well, I think that that's a really powerful question in charge to uh, leave for us and for our listeners. And, you know, as you were sharing that, it, you know, it, it, it crossed my mind that the um, Jewish vision for a, a perfected world is, you know, very wrapped up in our idea of Shabbat, of, of Sabbath. We say that Shabbat is a me'en olam haba, a, 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 a taste of the world to come, a glimpse of the world to come. And what is Shabbat encapsulate in Judaism, it is Ma'aseb uh, so the, the works of creation, which includes the recognition that we are, you know, uh, all equally created in the divine image and all of us siblings to one another, right? So that we need that sort of uh, full recognition of the dignity and, e and equal value of, uh, of, of ourselves and each other, uh, that, we, that we're made to be in community together. I love that idea of not kingship but kinship and i know one of the projects that you've been working on is uh uh trying to detangle the master and slave uh, uh imagery from our understanding of uh the bible and religions i love that idea of kinship uh but also uh shabbat is a remembrance of the exodus from egypt right that, uh, that those two things the uh, full recognition of each other's humanity and our equality and our relationship uh uh, that we're bound together, right? And that also, um, <clears throat> that the, the demand of liberation is total and has to be total and uncompromising, right? And, uh, and that power gives up nothing without a demand to quote Frederick Douglass. Yeah. 
Yes, yes, yes. Well, this has been, uh, Michael, I think, I think what you just stated is so elegant and so on point. Um, and it's amazing how, you know, a movie serves as an invitation for a conversation that enables us to reflect on those core values that really uh, orient us and animate our actions and really give life to who we are uh, as people. And it is these sorts of conversations uh, and providing space for them where we're allowed to enter in the fullness of who we are uh, and explore the depth and wonder that is humanity and that is God's creation. Well, amen. Uh, amen to that. Yeah, amen to that. Thank you so much, uh, Reverend Dr. Corey D.B. Walker for joining us today, for uh, engaging in this conversation with us. It's been really extraordinary. We're going to uh, wrap things up uh, just by reminding people that uh, we have been your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and uh, looking forward to more Pop Torah bumps for Hollywood in the future. Until next time, take care, everyone.